0: I thank you all for joining us today. I'm Nico Young, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Emory University School of Medicine. This is a joint cns podcast that will explore management of facial pain, including diagnosis and treatment options. And the overall goal is to really discuss and discover collaborative opportunities amongst our discipline so that we can deliver excellent patient care efficiently. So, I'm here with Dr. Nick Bullis and Dr. Samir Nuruz. Uh, Dr. Bullis, would you kindly introduce yourself?
1: I'm Nick Bullis, uh, also at Emory University, uh, professor of neurosurgery. Uh, and I've specialized in the treatment of both uh, trigeminal neuralgia, atypical trigeminal neuralgia, and other neuropathic pain, uh, pain of the face.
0: Terrific. Dr. Nuruz, if, if you can be so kind.
2: Sure, I'm Sam Naruz. I'm a a professor of uh, anesthesia and surgery at New Med and uh, OUCOM. I'm a headache specialist in uh, Akron, Ohio.
0: Terrific. Well, welcome to you both. Really excited to have this opportunity to kind of listen between, um, to to hear both of your expert opinions on this. Facial pain is obviously a very challenging topic, very, very, uh, it spans quite a number of diagnoses. So I'll start off with you, Dr. Nourouz. Tell us us a little bit about the the, the pain, uh, the facial pain patients that you see and how you kind of take in information and formulate a a diagnostic and treatment plan.
2: Yeah, I have to start by saying that patients with facial pain or complex facial pain syndrome, they are not easy. And unfortunately, we don't see them early on. At uh, the beginning or the onset of the disease, usually they will check with the primary care physician, uh, and they undergo lots of dental workup and TMJ stuff. And by the time we see them, it might be late in the game. And I cannot say, claim that there is no single uh, specialty can claim or can own uh, pain patients. It's across different disciplines. ENT, eye, ophthalmologist dermatologist, neurologist, rheumatologist, neurologist, headache specialist, uh, you name it. So uh, it, it has to be uh, really a multimodal approach in, in a specialized pain clinic, honestly, to be fair to the patients, because I feel bad for those patients. They go through multiple uh, specialists, spend years before they can come actually to a definitive diagnosis before treatment. And I think this is the magic word. If you can have a little algorithm in our minds that will work through it to reach the appropriate diagnosis, because I think this is the only positive thing that we can help those patients. Because unfortunately, most of the pain disorders, we cannot find a curative. We can make their symptoms manageable, but it has to start with a, an appropriate label. Because once you put the diagnosis in the patient chart, the patient will inherit this diagnosis Diagnosis, even whenever they go out of state to see someone else. It's set up the stage in the wrong base. So my recommendation that even if I see patient coming from out of state, you have to start from the scratch. Appropriate history, appropriate history, history, and then examination and definitely imaging if needed. And most of the pain physicians or neurologists, primary care physician, they are familiar with the red flag symptoms and signs that will require imaging for headaches, but for facial pain, it's different. It has to be very systematic. I mean, do you want me to elaborate how can I approach my own patients at this stage or? Uh,
0: yeah, why, why don't we jump to Dr. Bulus? Uh, you know, Dr. Bullis, you, you've, you, you you see the same kind of scenario too when patients kind of arrive late to you as well. Um, you know, taking a good history, as Dr. Naruse uh, talked about, is extremely important. But what are the, uh, the what are the steps that you go through in in, in terms of history, imaging, and uh, kind of your surgical workup? So
1: I, th- I think for for neurosurgeons, um, the the neurosurgical management, general neurosurgical management, primarily uh, targets trigeminal neuralgia. As you know, we've got a wide array of, of, of operations that can help for trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, and and we, we can deal with this continuum from type one trigeminal neuralgia to uh, type two or atypical trigeminal neuralgia. We do better with type one than type two. Uh, but I think when, when patients come to us um, to, to um, augment on what Dr. Naruz has said, uh, neurosurgeons need to be on their guard that, that what they're dealing with is, in fact, idiopathic trigeminal neuralgia, as opposed to uh, a secondary neuropathic facial pain syndrome of the face uh, or other form of, of uh, facial pain syndrome uh, that can be the result of, of tumors in the skull base, uh, stu- tumors in the basal cisterns, um, chronic sinus disease, a chronic ophthalmologic disease, um, uh, post-viral, post-herpetic neuralgia, uh, or or simply atypical facial pain, which is a diagnosis uh, of exclusion. It's a bit of a wastebasket diagnosis, and it's it's one that we all dread, um, regardless. Um, so I think as neurosurgeons, uh, we need to be on the lookout for these various uh, non-idiopathic trigeminal uh, syndromes, and uh, and. In particular, uh, rely on, uh, as Dr. Narusa said, our, our, our uh, associated disciplines. Not be afraid to send patients back if we're to them if we're concerned about this. Uh, and and I think that we shouldn't operate on on patients until, uh, frankly, we've had an MRI scan uh, with and without contrast, uh, examining uh, the the uh, cisterns. Uh, but having said that, we need to be on guard. And remember that facial pain is not just going to come from uh, these skull-based tumors that we as neurosurgeons are trained to look for. But there's also pathology outside the skull. Um, and in particular, I think uh, with regard to to approaching this as neurosurgeons, uh, first and foremost, we need to, to divide these syndromes into paroxysmal and non-paroxysmal states. Um, granted, uh, compression from uh, tumors can cause paroxysmal states uh, and, um, and hence, hence, the need for, for, for imaging. Uh, having said that, the, the, this array of, of techniques that, that we can bring to bear are largely effective for paroxysmal uh, pain states. Um, and even in the case that it, it's not trigeminal neuralgia, the non-paroxysmal pain states, um, there are other uh, approaches. And we can get into this when we talk
0: about the the operations that's terrific dr. Naruz, I, I I was wondering, uh, you know as us as neurosurgeons we'll kind of focus on neurovascular conflict at the trigeminal ganglion. Do you in your practice, also get MRIs and look for that as well as perhaps other imaging to look for some of the other pathologies that may not be on our radar uh, as much?
2: Yeah. I mean the general approach to uh, orofacial pain in general. Um, I'd like to get a detailed history, and I will discuss some of the pitfalls because I don't think we can go over all the syndromes in in in, uh, in one hour even. So usually I would like to know the, uh, what what happened before triggering the pain. Was it there is trauma, uh, rash, uh, dental workup? So uh, what triggered the pain? And the characteristics of the pain, as Dr. Bull said, uh, we want to know what's the timing, the onset, the duration, the episode. Is it minutes? Is it seconds? It's hours. Do you have a pain free interval? How long or not? Any associated symptoms, autonomic features, uh, uh, oral TMJ issues, ENT, vertigo, tinnitus it can lead to maybe tumors in the area. Uh, So associated symptoms imported and the progression was started episodic and then becomes more continuous. Uh, The pitfalls that I wanna mention is, not every face pain is neuropathic pain or trigeminal neuralgia or idiopathic persistent face pain. Honestly, history is very critical because I would say the most common cause of facial pain is primary headache disorders. Migraine patients, they can present with face pain and allodynia. even. Uh, it's it's actually, it's, it's really not uncommon. And so asking about typical migraine history, typical uh, migraine symptoms, the response to migraine medication might be just a trial to see. And the new CGRP agent, they're very helpful with the facial alludinia with migraine headaches. Cervicogenic headaches can be with mandibular pain, especially C2 neuralgia. So you have to rule out even disorders in the upper cervical spine, uh, especially C2 neuralgia. A1, uh, atlanto axial joint can be present also with the, even like a nail poking from the occipit to the eye. It's not cluster headache, it's not idiopathic facial pain. On the other hand, so this is one pitfall that you have to rule out primary headache disorders, honestly. Uh, and trigeminal neuralgia can be confused with those sharp uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, which is another primary headache disorder. So we want to know. You might need to give a test trial of Anderson for a few days and see if this is one of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, sanct or not. Because I order lots of imaging. Sure, if you want to uh, rule out the classic trigeminal neuralgia. But I want to make emphasis is that not every vascular conflict in the MRI will be the cause of the facial pain. We just jump sometimes on it based on someone that the patient with trigeminal neuralgia, and then you see an image. Uh, I think there's a few years ago, there was an, a good study that showed that there is conflict on the other side, the same or even worse, but there is no symptoms. So maybe it's just a coincidence. That's why you have to correlate the image to the uh, presentation and this what triggered the international classification of headache disorder the new one is that as Dr. Poulis said there's trigeminal neuralgia and there is trigeminal neuropathy or painful trigeminal neuropathy and trigeminal neuralgia used to say it's classic you have to have a vascular conflict now no it divided into three things classic which has the neurovascular conflict and then idiopathic which is typical trigeminal neuralgia clinically diagnosed but the MRI is finding is, is normal, and there is secondary, which is typical from uh, shingles. The, uh, sorry, the secondary uh, secondary causes MS or tumors. Shingles actually uh, trigeminal neuropathy. So trigeminal neuropathy will be uh, shingles, traumatic or idiopathic. So this is the, the this is the main focus of reaching an appropriate diagnosis, because if it turned to be a classic trigeminal neuralgia failure of conservative treatment with pharmacological agent, then definitely, I would say the definitive treatment will be surgical uh, taking care of this neurovascular conflict. But on the other hand, if it's idiopathic, there is no negative imaging, but typical symptom, then you try pharmacological management, maybe interventional uh, options, and we can talk about it later. So this is what I want to emphasize, that rule out uh, for a fresh uh, patient with artificial pain, we need to rule out primary headache disorder, whether migraine with alludinias or uh, um, cervical headache or upper cervical uh, disorders referred through the C2 to the angle of the mouth or even the cheek. And trigeminal neuralgia, we need to distinguish it from two things, painful trigeminal neuropathy, and the other thing will be the short, lancinating uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, which usually, respond well to Anderson or wrong. SPG later on.
0: That's terrific, Dr. Naruz. Um, yeah, it's really important points. Um, it's it's very easy to get anchored to a diagnosis when a patient gets comes to your office. Uh, Dr. Bulas, so let's say we have a typical uh, uh, lancinating uh, trigeminal neuralgia. What, what's what's your step in terms of determining uh, uh, treatment and uh, treatment surgical options for for such a patient? Uh, if you can tell us that,
1: sure. But uh, just let me loop back a little bit. I mean, again, my my assumption is that this is largely a, a podcast can be listened to by neurosurgeons, and and uh, I think the average neurosurgeon. Um, doesn't necessarily have the diagnostic depth uh, of Doctor Naruse, and and isn't going to necessarily see this all the time. So I think I think that let me try to dumb it down. Um, and granted, I'm, pro- I'm probably going to lose lose something uh, by by dumbing it down. But but the bottom line is this: um, it, paroxysmal immediate onset pain states have a high probability of responding to our our various ablative uh armamentarium uh and and that may be true even if particularly if these are triggered paroxysmal states um even if it's secondary and it's coming from something else um whereas the the more constant um component of the, of these mixed states or states that are simply constant uh i'm i'm fairly opposed uh to the use of of ablative approaches um period. And, and so then the question becomes, well, what do we have um, that is not the classic ablative approaches? Um, and by ablative approaches, I mean glycerol, balloon, radiofrequency. These are the percutaneous approaches. Uh, open approaches that include open partial rhizotomy or internal neurolysis, which I feel is a, is a type of ablation or controlled damage to the trigeminal system. Uh, and then all of the radiosurgical approaches and and perhaps focused ultrasound as as we see it emerge. Um, so I, I think that that we have an enormous number of of potentially damaging or ablative approaches. They can be useful, whether it's primary or secondary if it's triggered and paroxysmal. Um, but you need to know whether it's secondary because uh, you know, if there's an underlying tumor that needs to be treated as well. Um, and that primary diagnosis may give hints into other approaches that are non, non-surgical. But I, I think I think it's okay as neurosurgeons to rely on, on our referring doctors uh, and say, okay, you've seen a good neurologist. That neurologist has not defined a medical therapy for it or has you on medical therapy, but it's not enough. Um, am I going to consider surgery First, foremost, is this paroxysmal and triggered? Consider ablation. Is this primarily constant? This is where I think we should be considering neuromodulation. And, and frankly, uh, neuromodulation is is a work in progress for neurosurgery. Uh, as as you know, um, most of the approaches that I've been writing about are, are off label, all of them. Uh, that the traditional neurosurgical approaches to constant refractory neuropathic pain, have really targeted the nucleus caudalis, uh, and those include trigeminal tractotomy and, and caudalis stress. Uh, but these, these procedures are, are not commonly practiced out there, uh, frankly, have high uh, neurological morbidity and, and require specialized team, specialized training. Um, so I think for uh, these constant pain states, um, the neuromodulation options that we've been writing about are, are excellent options and most neurosurgeons have the skills to employ them.
0: That's great. Uh, Dr. Darroos, for these uh, constant type trigeminal, uh, of I should say, facial pains, uh, is, there, is there any middle ground in terms of uh, the treatments that you offer uh, that, that's, that, that's not uh, lesser invasive perhaps?
2: Uh, again, there was evolution in our understanding of the trigeminal nerve disorders. And uh, as Dr. Poole said, the progression pattern, it's very important because it predicts the response to uh, some of the surgical options. But we used to say that the patient has to have pain-free interval between the episodes. We don't do this anymore. We, there is a subclassification of classic trigeminal neuralgia associated with continuous pain. So it still can be neurovascular, and if the MRI imaging is, is clear, there is an, uh, a cause, there is a conflict, I will still refer the patient to neurosurgeon. If the patient has classical trigeminal neuralgia, even with a continuous pain between them, you guys know better, it might be the pro, uh, the prognosis might not be as good as if it's just purely proxysmal, but it's still trigeminal neuralgia, not painful trigeminal neuralgia. For the patient that they failed surgical options, if they have neurovascular conflict, or uh, if they don't have an etiopathic uh, trigeminal neuralgia, Uh, the pharmacological management, we always say like try the uh, carbamazepine, the oxycarbamazepine, this is the first uh, class. Baclofen might be helpful as well. Uh, Gabapentoid, it's worth to try it. If the patient failed those pharmacological options, uh, I, I, I do a lot of the gazerian ganglion uh, block as a diagnostic first. Um, I get referrals even before Gamma and I, am not sure, have how the response to just a simple, simple local anesthetic injection. If the response is good and the patient is uh, aware, I mean, informed consent is very important before the neuroablative. As Dr. Poulos said, they are not without significant potential complications. I don't do glycerol anymore. Uh, we used to in the past, but now our approach is usually radio frequency neuromodulation. And we knew from our experience and the published lecture that we're trying to avoid high temperature. We used to use 90 degrees. We went down to 80 for a while. And actually now I do not use more than 70 degrees. Uh, I'm not aware of bad anesthesia de la Rosa with uh, radiofrequency ablation below 70 degrees. So we, we do the typical uh, multiple lesions. You examine the patient between the lesion to make sure the cornea is fine. Uh, but um, my advice would be to obtain, take your time obtaining the informed consent because uh, I reviewed cases that the patient said, oh, I was not aware of this, that's possible. But it is possible the patient will have uh for a while, for weeks, and I see Dolorosa, thankfully it's it's uh, one digit number, 1% maybe, but with low temperature, uh, between 60, 70 degrees, maybe 80 degrees and recurrent patient. Typically, if they work, typically the patient usually come between 12 months to 18 months for another one. And uh, I offer this neuroplastic procedure only for elderly patients that they cannot eat, they cannot drink. I have patients that they have to have a stoma to feed them. Uh, because how bad it is. So in those patients, you, you weigh the, the pros and cons. You have radiofrequency ablation. They are 90 years old. You cannot have a craniotomy or a brain surgery. So you weigh the pros and cons. If, if this is making them functioning, um, drinking and eating, yes, they will accept the risk. But on the other hand, a young female patient with questionable uh, idiopathic patient, neuropathic pain, I will never offer a neuroapplative procedure, maybe neuro modulation. Uh, after ruling out psychological disorders, uh, I would offer neuromodulation. And nowadays we have few uh, on the market, few companies that they offer preferent neuromodulation. They are not FD approved for headaches or cranial neuralgia, but if it's a nerve disorder or nerve injury, I think you can uh, uh, get it approved. Uh, we use preferent neuromodulation it's becoming more popular than before because not majority of pain physicians are not comfortable handling the gazillion ganglion, uh, even for uh, neuroapplative procedure. The, as Dr. Proulx said, uh, it's off-label to do the gazillion neuromodulation. Although I had few patients in the past, it, it's, it's a beautiful indication if you guys reached out to uh, a custom lead, uh, this would be perfect, honestly. Uh, but uh, again my, my two options will be either uh, radio frequency ablation 70 at the most I might go to 80 degrees if if uh, I know the patient patient come back twice seven degrees does not last the whole year uh, I might go to 80 degrees uh, prefer neuromodulation especially for traumatic prefer uh, cranial uh, neuropathy for post uh, posttraetic neuralgia although the prognosis usually is not as good Um for idiopathic, persistent idiopathic facial pain, usually it's autonomic mediated. We don't know for sure. I would prefer to go with autonomic ganglion for the idiopathic facial, persistent idiopathic facial pain. Usually they're targeting the sphenopelatine ganglion, whether again radio frequency, you can start pulsed with 45 degrees or go thermal for 80 degrees, or there are or there were some neuromodulation products for it,
0: Dr. Bulls, um, you you're really leading the charge in terms of uh, neuromodulation for the face. Can you tell us a little bit about your technique uh, for implanting those?
1: Sure. Um, and and I, although I do want to comment because I really left out commenting on microvascular decompression in 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 my earlier statement. Um, in just to, again to dumb it down, um, I I in contrast to the ablative procedures in these sort of type two trigeminal neuralgia situations, combination of of that constant with paroxysmal, even situations where there, as Dr. Bruce is saying, where there is, it is predominantly constant and there really isn't any uh, paroxysmal component. If it started with paroxysmal, and therefore I think that this is uh, idiopathic trigeminal neuralgia and there's vascular compression, I'll consider doing uh, decompression, uh, and I and I think this is this is a tough this is a tough call, and I think you can talk with your patients about it as as um, you know type one vascular compression, happy to do an MVD, type two or extreme type two, i.e., very uh, sort of persistent pain, minimal paroxysms, but there's a vessel there, you know, you you have this, uh, you can go either way. Do you want to do you want a craniotomy and go for the cure, uh, or are you willing to do neuromodulation? Remember, neuromodulation uh, rarely cures pain. It's a way to help you deal with it, um, and and so you're committing yourself to a lifetime of, of an implanted device, um, and you're not going to get a complete effect, but on the other hand, you don't have to undergo a craniotomy. There's another nuance to this, which is that if you do do the, the microvascular decompression, you've got already, you already have craniotomy and mesh and an incision behind the ear. uh, And uh, at least with the trigeminal stimulation so far, we've depended on anchoring uh, the system behind the ear. So, so the, the, Two main targets we've used for neuromodulation are either uh the trigeminal ganglion root and and third division uh, by placing uh, an electrode up through the frame the valley and and soft passing it so that it, it extends through the porous trigeminis um we originally i did this with a temporary externalization wire uh, because it's kind of involved to put these leads in Uh, But I think that the temporary externalization wires uh, were making it harder to do prolonged trials. Um, So we simply do a stage one where we put in the trigeminal lead either alone or together with an infraorbital or superorbital lead that's placed just under the galea in in the face um, and tunneled out at approximately the sideburn, which is where we will tunnel the, the facial uh, rather, the trigeminal lead up the face. Some some of uh, the some docs out there are also doing mandibular branch uh, uh, peripheral nerve stimulation as well. So you have the th- th- peripheral nerve stimulation of the three branches, or you can place this transframenovalley lead, um, which the distal element, the distal uh, part of the lead, uh, will stimulate the root. Uh, the more the the central part will pick up ganglion and the the proximal end will pick up the third division. Um, We've used the superorbital and infraorbital leads to spread current, run current between the trigeminal lead and the lead in the face, um, so as to steer current up towards uh, the first and second divisions. But admittedly, it's harder to get uh, neuropathic pain in the forehead uh, than it is to get the jaw just because of the anatomy um, with this. Um, I agree with, with Dr. Naruz that, that custom leads uh, are, are going to improve these outcomes. Uh, we need better anchor systems. Um, I've begun to, to, to uh, attempt this with the Abbott DRG system, uh, which, uh, for those of you who have used the Abbott DRG system, uh, always asks for strain relief loops implanted deep. Um, to prevent migration when you do it in the spinal canal. These same kinds of loops can be created below the skull base to resist uh, resist pull out, but that, that's a work in progress. Bottom line is um, a system that incorporates an anchor is going to do better in the long run. A system that gives us more three-dimensionality with respect to distribution of the electrodes is gonna do better. Um, that's sort of next generation. Uh, having said that, the, the subcompact lead uh, uh, that's made for spinal cord stimulation. Biometronic percutaneous um, actually fits quite well, and, and I've written about this. The other direction uh, that we've gone, and, and this is really, uh, I think, uh, I was encouraged to do this by Ahmad Brazlan, is to target the nucleus caudalis. I was uh, skeptical that this was a would be a valid target initially, because as we all know, the nucleus caudalis extends past uh, the the frame and magnum. Uh, having said that uh, we go in and we place an open lead anterior grade up to the skull base uh, under c1 and and just under the the tip of c2 to cover nucleus caudalis and the and the um, off center so the the midline of the lead uh, sits right at right at the midline so you can pick up dorsal columns there as well as the nucleus um, and uh, we we run that out with a temporary externalization wire uh, and let the patients go for a week or two. Um, this can be challenging because that incision is also painful. Um, so at times uh, when patients aren't recovering from, from the pain, I'll just clip the temporary externalization wire, let it sit, let them heal, come back, put in a second temporary externalization wire, and then they do the trial to see if it's going to work. Um, but but we've had have, have had great success with this, and I think that uh, that approach is actually one of my tricks for dealing with these mixed uh, type two trigeminal neuralgic conditions, um, because uh, you really want to leave the and Valley open, um, because as we know, trigeminal neuralgia recurs. So it's it is possible to target the nucleus caudalis uh, with neuromodulation, treating that constant component which is resistant to to transforaminal ablation um, and leave the foramen open in case they have recurrent type 1 pain um, to do lesional approaches there. Um, so that's that's been my general uh, preference with regard to neuromodulation. And I always encourage patients to try neuromodulation before uh, uh, attempting either trigeminal tractotomy or caudalis stress because uh, these neurologic complications can, can be permanent, uh, and uh, I've seen quite a lot of a proprioceptive deficit in the ipsilateral arm with tractotomy. I've seen a lot of, of ataxia, largely uh, improves or, or goes away with caudal stress, but again, it's a very invasive procedure.
2: Do you have any experience with those kind leads in Europe, at least in one center in Belgium, I, this was like five years ago. I, I witnessed that they are using like a small tined lead in the Framingham Valley. So the 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 history of that is is kind of a little bit perverse,
1: uh, perverse. If if it's what I think, there there was a custom lead that was made in intellectual property is owned uh, by Medtronic um, back in the in the 90s, I believe. Uh, they created a monopolar lead with tines that. Could be deployed, um, and there was a single investigator uh, who had been using this system uh, in placing it the way I describe. Um, that those tines being deployable so that it prevent uh, migration, and then you could you could retract them to pull the lead out. Um, the problem with that lead was it just had it was monopolar at a single contact. Um, so so naturally uh, the trend over time with spinal cord stimulation, for example, has been to have more complex arrays that allow more flexibility of programming. Um, so at least if that's the lead that that you're talking about, it existed. Um, the a tri- Medtronic ran a trial on it, but the trial failed to meet its primary endpoint, uh, and it was largely abandoned by by Medtronic. Though the primary investigator published his series and was quite positive about it. Similarly, there's a custom lead that was created that is that looks like a SunKeys clip. It is literally a, a bracelet that can be clipped on um, that is has silicon with four contacts in it that goes circumferentially that can be placed through a suboccipital approach that we use for microvascular decompression. Um, this was originally developed actually in England as a custom lead. Again, it's over in the EU because custom devices have a much more streamlined path. It um, was never released in the United States, uh, but the, the gentleman uh, who worked with it uh, for constant neuropathic pain, um, reported uh, that he had had great results with it. Um, and that same lead was also used to try to treat tinnitus by clipping it on the seventh, eighth nerve. So so there have been, there are devices out there. They're just not uh, available for, for uh, use by, by common practitioners. Um, so I agree, in the long run, the future of neuromodulation is going to be for some companies, small or large. Uh, to develop a custom system. I personally have been out uh, campaigning for this, speaking to Medtronic, speaking to Abbott, trying to work with small companies to develop products. Um, my opinion is that, that what will happen eventually is that a small company will come out with a nice lead, will start to use it, it'll start to look positive, um, because it fills an niche that just isn't being filled. Uh, and then one of the bigger companies will, will buy that company
0: and, and it will be available. Um, But uh, we have a a bit of work to do before that's available. I I want to thank our listeners and also to the uh, CNS and NANs for supporting this joint collaboration for this innovative series. Uh, Dr. Bulas, Dr. Naruz, thank you both very, very much for your time to discuss this very challenging topic in our fields. Uh, I hope our listeners will be able to join us again for our future episodes and also for the interactive webinar that's going to be moderated by the faculty from these podcasts. This is a jointly funded and conceptualized project uh, from the education committees of NANS and CNS. Well, thank you everyone and have a great evening.